Sarah and I are going to watch 90 Day Fiance after this because if you ever want to see people act like real life comic book villains, that's the show for you. Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we mind flay the mimics one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the Gith Yankee of Gloom, Jessica Frazier. I can be gloomy sometimes. You are correct. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm actually really good. How are you? I'm also really good. I'm I'm excited to talk about this topic tonight. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. If you are new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you are enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it'd be a huge help if you'd rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts because that really helps with discoverability. As September 12th marks National Video Game Day, this episode is dropping on the 13th of September. So it felt only right to discuss Baldur's Gate, both the video games and the comic books that they spawned. And this felt especially appropriate given how Baldur's Gate 3 came out last month for PC and Mac and will have just dropped on PlayStation 5 the week before this episode hits the web. Yeah. So very excited. Yeah. But before we start talking about that, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? Well, I've been going to Nostalgia Town recently and... Mm. I've been watching movies I used to enjoy as a kid. Particularly, I watched recently a Goofy movie. Ah, nice. Powerline, right? It's so Powerline. It's so good. Oh, my gosh. So I used to own the soundtrack. Mike, I owned it on cassette tape. Yeah. And I had, and wait a second. No, I still have that entire thing (laughs) memorized. Good. And after torturing my friend Jamoya on the phone by singing literally every song to him one night, he suggested that I go watch it again. <laughs> and I did. I like it's funny because they I keep on seeing like Powerline Funko Pops popping up in the wild. And I'm like, I kind of want that, but I also kind of don't. I don't know. I kind of do. I know. I haven't seen one in the wild before. So I'll have to if you see one, maybe pick it up for me. Yeah, I'll let you know. <laughs> Yeah, I just enjoy that movie so much. It's sweet. It's got really great sentiment and like family love. And it has some mm. freaking sick jams. So listen, y'all, if you haven't seen a Goofy movie, go watch it. You will not be disappointed. And the last thing I have to say about that is Lester's Possum Park is probably the funniest thing I've seen in my entire life. On so that, many levels. <laughs> I'm thinking about that movie now because I remember seeing it with like, I think, I think it was like a birthday party for one of my siblings. And I remember being mad because I couldn't hate the movie. It was like way better than I expected it to be. Yeah. It really, yeah. and you know what? It holds up too. Yeah. We watched it with the kids a couple of years ago and we were like, this is solid. Yeah. It has a lot of really funny, like adult moments and just, you know, and I actually listened to some discourse on TikTok recently Mm. about how this is portraying like the experience of a black family. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so, and they talk about how, like how power lines black and I'm like, wait, yes. (laughs) And then they talk about how, like how they think the goofs are black. And so it's really cool. Like, I can't remember the creator's name, unfortunately. I'm so terrible. I wish I remembered that, but it was, it was, it was really good commentary. And I, I could see a lot of that being, you know, the vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I could totally see it. I'm assuming that it's on Disney plus, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. Well, what about you? Yeah. So I think I mentioned recently that I picked up a PS5 from Nostalgia Alley, which is the local used video game store in Petaluma. Yeah. They are awesome. We're friends with the owners. Sarah and I text with Jason, the owner, on a regular basis because he finds stuff, usually for Sarah, that's Sailor Moon related. Uh, Love it. Also, if you are in the area, you should go and check out their event space that they just opened up upstairs. Sarah and I are getting married there in October. It's going to be great. Like, it's very cool. It's a really neat little retro arcade area. And there's going to be a Mario Kart tournament (laughs) right before we get married. It's going to be fantastic. 
<laughs> so cool. So freaking cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as a result of getting a PS5, I wound up picking up a copy of Marvel's Midnight Suns, which this feels extra appropriate because of tonight's episode. So this was a game that was in development when I worked at 2K. And this is the one title that I am genuinely sad my name didn't wind up in the credits for. It was in development for a long time while I was there. And then I left the company about two years before it actually launched. So, I mean, you know, that wasn't going to happen. (laughs) But, you know, I was like, oh, I'd really love to have my name like in the credits for something Marvel related. Yeah. Oh, well. It's okay. So it's a really unusual title. It's a turn-based tactical RPG developed by Firaxis, the studio responsible for XCOM and Civilization. So the gameplay itself is small tactical battles where you control teams of superheroes. And the extra caveat is that it's a card deck building game too. So you build these decks for your heroes with different abilities and attacks, and then you draw a hand and you control your team's actions and attacks via these cards. So there is like a healthy amount of like luck of the draw involved in this too. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I really liked it. It's kind of like it's hitting all of my sweet spots. So I'm like, this is a game that feels like it was specifically created for me. The story is based on the 1992 Rise of the Midnight Sun storyline that Dan Chichester was involved with when he was writing a Night Stalkers comic. But it's a new story with an original character And it also brings in a wider range of other characters, including Captain America, Blade, Magic from the X-Men, Nico Minoro from The Runaways, and The Scarlet Witch. So ultimately, this is a turn-based tactical game with deck-building mechanics based on one of my favorite stories from Marvel Comics. Like I said, it feels specifically created for me. (laughs) And I've been enjoying the hell out of it. And one thing that I really appreciate is that it is extremely queer friendly. Like there is a huge part of the plot revolving around how your character's mentor was living with Agatha Harkness for centuries. And they don't specifically say that they were a queer couple, but there is a part later on where caretaker refers to Agatha as the love of her life. Mm, (laughs) And then it treats its female characters in the game really well. Like it passes the Bechdel test several times over. There's a whole mechanic of building up friendships with your teammates and literally everyone feels like you were trying to romance each of these characters. You're not because they're like, Oh, we're really glad we're friends. And I'm like, Oh, you cowards. Like, come on. Like, let me, let me kiss Captain America. Exactly. But there is a really funny subplot where blade starts a book club because he's trying to like flirt with Captain Marvel. Stop it. And it's really funny. Like, you know, and so the whole thing is like he and Captain Marvel develop feelings for each other. You kind of help shepherd those feelings a little bit and then there's a whole bit where the book club gets started and you get invited to it and you find out that the reason it got started is because blade was talking to captain marvel about a book and then captain america thought that they were starting a book club and so he asked if he could join and blade was like what was i gonna say like i can't say no to captain america right exactly oh my goodness genuinely really good it was a commercial bomb for 2k you know it just It was well-reviewed, it just, it didn't sell well. And I'm really, really sad about that. Like, it's a lot of fun to play. So hopefully it has a long tail life and people keep on picking it up. So I need to make a correction about something. So you said Dan Chichester, but what you didn't say was friend of the pod, Dan Chichester. And I think that- Yes, I'm sorry. That is very fucking rude. So Dan, listen, I'm on (laughs) your side, man. Yeah. I know you're listening to this, so, and I appreciate you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. As Mike soon, has brought up one of your comments. <laughs> oh, man. Soon to be three-time returning guest on the podcast, Dan Chichester. He's made a cameo appearance, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually really excited about that because he is coming back on to talk about another comic that he wrote in the 90s, but also yeah. we are going to be talking about his upcoming Daredevil Black Armor miniseries. Yes. I am so excited about that. I am, too. I literally... Yeah. I found a copy of the issue where that appears. I own like four or five copies of that issue now because it's got a glow in the dark cover. And it's one of those ones where anytime (laughs) I find it out in the wild, I will snap it up. So, yeah. Oh, well, Dan, we're excited. We're excited to have you on, Dan. (laughs) Yeah, no, we're very excited. But in the meantime, what do you say we uh, bounce along to discuss some Baldur's Gate goodness? Boing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
Okay, before we get started, I need to note a couple of things. This episode is primarily focusing on the Baldur's Gate comics, but really one comic in particular. Baldur's Gate is way too big of a topic to cover in one episode. In fact, you could probably do an entire podcast focusing on it because it is such a massive topic these days. We're trying to be more focused on this one aspect of the franchise. And while we are going to be talking a bit about the games, this isn't an in-depth discussion or analysis. I'm sure there are plenty of other podcasts or videos that you could watch. That said, there will be some spoilers if you haven't played the first game, which came out 25 years ago. I don't feel bad about that. Oh my God, Mike, how dare you? Uh, I know. You know, spoil something 25 years old. Some of our listeners oh, are man. like, I'm not even that old. I would love it if we had younger listeners. <laughs> I would love it too. I... Man, I was on a panel at the Penny Arcade Expo like a decade ago, and I was I spoiled something from Final Fantasy VII, and people were like getting mad, and I'm like, the game is over twenty years old. What do you want from me? <laughs> like, it's like I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, at what point? Like, somebody tell me at what point? Like, can we talk about things? Like, at what point is it okay to discuss like pivotal plot points? <laughs> In, like public spaces. I think if you're more than five years out, it's time. Right. That seems reasonable. Yeah. Anyway, how familiar are you with the Baldur's Gate games, by the way? I've only seen clips on TikTok. I haven't actually played myself, and I definitely didn't know anything about it like prior to the current buzz. Okay, cool. So I'm coming at it from the other end of the spectrum. I played the original Baldur's Gate when it came out. It's funny because I don't remember beating it. But when I was watching videos preparing for this, I watched the ending and all that. And I was like, this feels very familiar. Like, I've seen this before, so I must have beaten it at some point. Right. I never played the expansions or the sequel to Baldur's Gate, but I played the other games that kind of spun off from it. Like, I played Icewind Dale. I played Planescape Torment. I also played Fallout, which was published by the same group. So you danced around it. Yeah, and I've also played a bunch of other games by BioWare. So, yeah. So Baldur's Gate is the second game developed by BioWare, and it was published by Interplay Productions. Interplay was originally founded in the early 80s as a development studio, and then they started publishing games in 1988. They originally only published their own titles, but then they went on to work with third-party studios as well. They weren't a huge name or anything, but they had a good amount of success. They had titles like Battle Chess and Alone in the Dark and Out of This World. And then they started doing RPGs in the late 90s. So they had Fallout, which was the post-apocalyptic action role-playing game that has eventually gone on to be a juggernaut, but not necessarily under the Interplay label. It's now under Bethesda. Baldur's Gate itself is a fantasy role-playing game that began development in 1995, and it used a modified version of the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition rules. It was the first game to use the Infinity Engine for its graphics, and this wound up becoming a staple for Interplay's other RPGs, including Icewind Dale and Planescape Torment. And overall, it is an open-ended RPG where players create a character and then travel across the Sword Coast while recruiting a party of companions along the way. The game's main story is divided up into eight parts, featuring a prologue and seven other chapters. And each section requires the player to complete a specific task in order to continue to the next part of the story. And the story itself, it's a, you know, it feels like a pretty solid D&D campaign. It begins with the player's character who is known as the Ward, starting out as an orphan under the care of the Mage Gorion. They live in the library fortress of Candlekeep until a sinister armored figure murders Gorion one night. The players escape and then they wind up investigating an iron crisis in the area and they learn that it's been manufactured by the Iron Throne, which is a sinister merchant group operating out of the city of Baldur's Gate. The Iron Throne is trying to control all of the iron in the region. This eventually leads the players going back to Candlekeep to spy on a meeting that the Iron Throne is having. And while there, the ward learns of a prophecy stating that the offspring of Baal got a murder will cause chaos in the world until one person remains and they themselves become the new Lord of Murder. The player also finds a letter from Gorian revealing that they themselves are actually one of Bale's kids. There it is. Yeah. They are a group known as the Bale Spawn. The Iron Thrones leaders are subsequently murdered and the player character and their party are framed for it by an individual 
known as Saravok. And then it turns out Saravok is also the armored dude who murdered Gorian early in the game. Mm, okay. And then plot twist, Saravok is also Balespawn and wants to become the new Lord of Murder. So he has Whoa. been trying to kill the player from the outset of the game. There's a lot of political machinations that go on throughout all of this that I'm skipping over. I'm just kind of like hitting the broad beats. But eventually Saravok manages to convince Baldur's Gate that he is kind of a savior. The city almost crowns him as its new Grand Duke, but the players manage to crash the coronation and publicly reveal all of his misdeeds before chasing him into the ruins under the city and killing him in a final battle. And as he dies, it's revealed that there are more bale spawn across the continent, but that's a problem for another game. So something that I think is important to note, nobody actually expected this game to do well. Wikipedia has a really solid summary of all of this that I would like for you to read. Absolutely. According to Fergus Urquhart, Interplay's commercial forecasts for Baldur's Gate were very low. He noted that the publisher's headquarters in Britain predicted zero sales in that region. Whew. Wild. Lifetime projections for the German market were no more than 50,000 copies, reported Udo Hoffman of PC Player. Internally, BioWare's worldwide sales goal was 200,000 units, a number that PC Zone's Dave Woods said would justify work on the sequel. However, the game became an unexpected commercial hit. Ray Mazaika attributed this success in part to the Dungeons & Dragons license and to the team's decision to use fan feedback during development, which he felt had increased the game's mass market appeal. I mean, which makes sense. Yeah, we'll talk more in detail about how wrong those predictions were in a few minutes, but for now, let's look at the tie-in comic itself. So this is a promo comic. It is called Forgotten Realms, colon, Baldur's Gate. This was a promotional giveaway. According to the Forgotten Realms fandom page, it was released September 8th, 1998, and it came with a coupon that netted readers a 10% discount if they ordered the game before its December 21st launch. Depending on the source... Ooh, not a coupon. A coupon, man. It's wild because... Ooh! You know, here's the thing is that, like, people forget that digital distribution wasn't a thing. Like it also, it wasn't, you know, GameStop and EB games and all of them, they weren't doing like the pre-order bonuses either. Like it just, it wasn't a thing. It hadn't hit that like kind of cultural zeitgeist moment where it's like, well, if you pre-order it from GameStop, you'll get like this exclusive content. Or if you go to Best Buy, you'll get this exclusive content. Or if you go to Walmart, you'll get a t-shirt, you know, it was so different back then. But yeah, so spoiler, I actually have a copy of this comic. You actually have to tear out this coupon and like mail it into them. Oh, you had to yeah. destroy your comic to get this yeah. coupon going. Ooh, that's absolutely that's not. <laughs> that hurts. That hurts the heart. I know, right? Depending on the source, the comic was published by TSR and or Interplay. It's not entirely obvious. But according to a comment that I found on developer Beamdog's forums, the comic was handed out at E3 that year as well and was also included in certain magazine subscriptions. I couldn't confirm either of those things. Okay. But E3 took place at the end of May that year. If for some reason, like I couldn't find a cover date in it, there's a possibility that I missed it. But if it has, you know, a published date in quotes of September 8th, 1998, that could mean that it was actually you know, put out in May of that year, which was when E3 was happening. So it's possible, but who knows? The comic was written by Lucas Christiansen and James Olin. It was penciled, inked, and lettered by John Gallagher, and it was colored by Dean V. White. It also features cover art by Michael Sass. Almost all of these people were working for Bioware at the time. They weren't professional comic creators. Oh, okay. That also kind of shows because the comics measurements aren't standard for this media. It is the same width, roughly, as a standard comic book, but it's about three quarters of an inch shorter than like a normal comic also. It's like I got it and I was like, oh, this is kind of weirdly sized. And fun little behind the scenes fact is that before we started recording this, 
Mike was like, wait a second, I'm going to go measure it really quick. <laughs> this is how my brain works. It's like, mm, Hey, you I know what, though, folks? He, he wants to give you the accurate information, and I can appreciate that. Like, it doesn't matter to anybody else but me, but yeah. <laughs> hey, Mike, I cared, like, I okay? I cared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, man. So Chris Johnson was the lead writer for Baldur's Gate, and... Olin was the lead designer on the game, and likewise, Gallagher was the game's lead artist. Sass was another artist at Bioware who specialized in things like box art and magazine covers and marketing illustrations. I don't think White was actually a part of Bioware. He's not listed in the game's credits, and he has had a long-running career doing color work for Marvel. Christiansen, Olin, and Gallagher all had pretty long-running careers at Bioware. Gallagher eventually left to work on TV and movie projects. Olin recently moved on to, I think, run a game studio that Wizards of the Coast established, developing like new IP and stuff. I think Christiansen is still there. Like he is credited with stuff up until a few years ago, and then he doesn't have anything else, but I couldn't find any updates. So I don't know. It's also possible that he was part of one of the layoffs that they've had because Bioware got purchased a while ago by Electronic Arts, and Electronic Arts is sort of notorious for picking up acclaimed studios and then gradually just driving them into the ground so hey everyone this is mike from the future so about a week after we recorded this news broke that christiansen was actually cut in a recent round of layoffs over at bioware that included a number of long-term studio employees reactions across the industry have been pretty dismayed and it further drives home my point about ea anyway back to the episode You know how I feel about mass layoffs. I get yeah. like heated. I get he- goddamn heated about them. You know that like you can set your calendar in the video games industry by like <laughs> by the layoffs that happen, right? That's terrible. And it's awful. Like it's the most stressful thing. I was at 2K for almost 7 years and every year around April we'd all start getting real nervous. And well, I mean, yeah. Isn't this going to tie just right the fuck in with my brain wrinkle? Don't worry, mm. folks. We'll get there. We'll get there. I'm all mad Buckle about up. it already. <laughs> yeah. All right. The comic story itself isn't actually tied to the main plot of the game. Instead, oh. it's sort of like a one-off adventure. Mm-hmm. It stars several characters from Baldur's Gate who are potential party members for the player character, the warg. You can recruit them as you travel along. There's Ajantis, the paladin, Shartiel, the fighter, Eldoff, the evil bard, Kivan, the ranger, and Tiox, the thief. The group is traveling with a convoy serving as bodyguards for a noble's bride-to-be when the caravan is attacked by a group of hobgoblins. It's a pretty big slaughter. Even Kivan and Tiox die. When Ajantus comes to, Chartiel tells him that Eldoth kidnapped the bride and stole her massive dowry. So the two set out to save the bride and recover the dowry itself. They don't have much success until they randomly encounter a dude who tries to sell them the info they need, but Chartiel basically intimidates him into spilling the beans. Ajantis, unsurprisingly, isn't thrilled about this because he's a paladin and, you know, they're all good and law-abiding. The two track down the bride to an inn. They find her dead in a bed with two other guys in the room. Chartiel kills one of them. Ajantis interrogates the other. They learn the men were working for Eldoth. And they pursue him into the Undercellar, which is an underground area beneath Baldur's Gate. When they find Eldoth playing poker down there, he tries to get the fuck out of Dodge and leads them on a chase into the sewers where he ambushes them with a group of hobgoblins. Shartil and Ajantis manage to emerge triumphant and Eldoth reveals he had a partner who it's implied is Shartil just before the latter kills him. Again, Ajantis isn't thrilled about this and he accuses Shartil of being Eldoth's partner. She immediately says, that's nonsense. And then she gives half of the dowry to Ajantis and tells him that he did what Eldoth couldn't. He killed their group. And then she leaves. And then things wrap up with Ajantis visiting an appraiser who tells him that the sack isn't worth that much because it's actually just filled with copper coins. And finally, we see Chartiel riding her horse through the woods, grinning as she flips a coin in her hand as she goes along. And that's it. It's only 18 pages long. And everything that I described happens very quickly yeah like this comic is incredibly difficult to find physical copies of my guess is that there were a limited number of them given out and people didn't actually hang on to them that much like and this is probably because of several factors the biggest of which is that 
it's not really anything amazing. Also, it was released in the late 90s when the bottom had fallen out of the comics industry in general. The speculation bubble between 1993 and 96 had just collapsed, meaning that revenue from comics and trading cards had collapsed by around 70%. Marvel had filed for bankruptcy in 1996 and was just starting to emerge from it when this book came out. So comics weren't exactly big deals at the time. And additionally, it was a promo comic without any big name creators involved for a game that people probably didn't care about at the time. Like, I doubt there was really a lot of buzz about Baldur's Gate at this point. Well, and again, they didn't think it was going to do well. So why, <laughs> yeah. why put a buzz around it, you know? Yeah. and the, But the other thing is like, you know, I have been to E3 and other events where they bring in like major comic book artists to do stuff for projects and they bank on that big name. There aren't any big name creators involved with this. It was just put together by people on the development team who were relatively early in their careers. Yeah. Now that said, like I said, I own a copy of this. It took me years to track down and I actually bought it from some guy in Australia. Like, so I got a parcel from Australia with this in it. It was really funny. It's not exactly worth crazy money, but it goes for about 50 bucks when you can get it. Yeah. It's more just the fact that it's hard to get. Right. And that said, you can actually read it really easily. There are digital copies of it all over the web. The easiest one to find is on the Baldur's Gate fandom site, which I sent to you to read. Yep. That's how I read it. You can find it very easily on a number of different file hosting sites. People have posted it numerous times in bulletin boards and forums. So if you just want to read the story, super easy to track down. So let's talk about the comic a little. Like, how yeah. did you feel about the story? Uh, it was really confusing, but I just kind of went with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it was action packed. Mm -hmm. It definitely had that D&D &D vibe about it. Right. But it also had like fucking damsels and shit and like fridging, <laughs> like the fucking yeah. damsel got fridged even. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, there it is. We don't care. Yeah. About women. I don't know. I, I don't yeah. know why I expect any more than that. Yeah, and I mean, fridging of women wasn't exactly, it wasn't known for the trope that it is now. Right. Like, the fridging thing had just happened a couple of years prior in Green Lantern, and exactly. Gail Simone had discussed it and, like, kind of started to shine attention on it. But that whole thing was actively happening. You know, women were very often yeah. used as, you know, the catalyst for the main protagonist. You know, yeah. either their death or their love or whatever, you know. Yeah. I mean, so. that's always been happening. Like, it's only mm -hmm. recently started to really kind of, I feel, be addressed and changed. Yeah. There is an excellent series of videos called Tropes Against Women by Anita Sarkeesian. Highly recommend you check out if you ever want to learn more about this. Yeah, I agree with you. It's like a quick little D&D &D adventure that doesn't quite make sense to me. And that's speaking as someone that is relatively familiar with that game. The fandom page noted that there were a lot of out-of-character moments for the protagonist in the story. I can't oh. imagine how confusing it would have been okay. if I'd read this before the game came out. Like that's interesting. Like, okay, so they're yeah. not even they're not even like <laughs> they're writing them even out of character. Like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. No wonder. Okay. It may have I, maybe made a little bit more sense if they had like made them in character, yeah. maybe. Yeah, but I mean the thing is that this was probably being put together about a year before the game launched, and so they probably were also rewriting the characters themselves and stuff. They probably did that concurrent writing of the game as they were writing the comic thing. Yeah, I mean, I know that they put that they added in some characters kind of last minute too, and like cobbled together their character personalities and voice lines and things like that. I don't know. It, you know, like it's very easy to speculate on that stuff, but I, I don't want to sit there and assume things. Yeah, totally. But yeah, I kind of got the vibe that this was created by someone who was so deeply immersed in the game and its lore that they were like, oh, this totally makes sense when it totally wouldn't for anyone that didn't have that same familiarity. I, yeah, I see. But I mean, the other thing is that, you know, none of these characters actually feel like characters. It's just like, oh, they're just, they're basically, they're paper dolls with different outfits on. We don't really get right. much of anything. Otherwise, like we don't spend any time with them. We don't learn about them. It's, you know, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so I don't know. It's, it's funny to me because this was supposedly designed for readers who weren't familiar with the game. But I mean, did, did you understand what was going on? my face right now i'm like mm, oh yeah no it? it's <laughs> <laughs> was it though you sure no, about because... that mm. uh, it was it was confusing it was super confusing and i 
I really decided pretty early in that I wasn't going to stress too hard about following exactly who everyone was and what what was happening because I was like, yeah. we're going to figure it out. There's going to come to a conclusion here. The team's going to do something like, let's just see what happens. Yeah. I have to wonder if they just threw it together as kind of like a last minute thing to market this to. And like they were so rushed that like it was just kind of just slap it together with the bare bones or alternately maybe maybe interplay cut the budget for this because Mm. the tracking like was going so poorly that they had more i don't know um we're we're speculating again like we know nothing about this like internally yeah exactly that said how did you feel about the art i mean now that you tell me all that i think it was good for what it was you know especially if we didn't have like top name people working on things it had that fantasy styling that i expect from Mm -hmm. that era and that genre and so it was what i expected it to look like but i do like the style that it was drawn in and i have to say though in comparison i do like the newer stuff better but we'll get there yeah we'll get there yeah like i'm i'm kind of on the same page as you i think it holds up pretty well i've seen a lot of other books from the 90s that look far worse and yeah oh yeah we've read stuff that's far worse <laughs> like they're much more visually confusing or just badly drawn yeah yeah like i felt like it it held up pretty well like just the overall vibe of this comic is it feels kind of disposable it doesn't feel like anything really noteworthy and it's not bad but it's one of those things where i just was kind of like all right that's a thing that exists I feel like you could have inserted any other characters into those places and have oh, yeah. the same story. Yeah, exactly. And it maybe made it have it made a little bit more sense if they were established characters. Yeah. You know, the other thing is that they didn't know who the popular characters were going to be at that point either, which That's is fair. why a certain other character shows up in the further comics. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, it goes without saying that Baldur's Gate was a smash hit, even though it released only a couple of days before Christmas, which is a terrible time to release a video game. Right. Like, speaking as someone that has worked through numerous launch seasons, games get released usually from like August till about October, and then they have all the different Black Friday and various holiday sales at stores to take advantage of all that. It is an awful time to work in video games because you can't take time off. (laughs) Like. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's brutal but yeah it wound up launching to critical acclaim and honestly stunning sales it sold 175,000 copies globally in only two weeks and it spent the first half of 1999 sitting on various top 10 sales charts this is even more impressive when you consider it was a pc only game back then like other platforms weren't really considered there wasn't a console adaptation Digital distribution wasn't a thing, meaning that people were just going to stores and physically buying copies of the game. Like, I don't think Amazon was even selling anything other than books back then. Right. Yeah. Like, I I remember, like, I think it was a couple of years later when they started selling, like, other forms of media. Right. Exactly. (laughs) As opposed to everything like they do now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, needless to say, Bioware was pretty happy with the sales numbers, as was Interplay. They put out some expansions, plus a full sequel, which also got its own expansions. Baldur's Gate also received tons of awards for like best game of the year, things like that, and was put at various media outlets, best RPG of all time list. There was also a console spinoff series eventually called Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance. That was pretty well received. And Baldur's Gate itself is still widely hailed as one of the greatest games ever made. It's been updated several times to play on a wide variety of platforms. I remember playing it on my iPad when I flew to and from Germany like a while ago. And I even downloaded it on my PS5 this week just to play around on it a little. It's definitely dated in terms of visual and design and scope, but it still really holds up pretty well. Like it's still solid. That's cool. Yeah. And then this is a bit anecdotal, but like I was, you know, actively a gamer at this point in time. I was really into computer games in the late 90s, so bear with me. Interplay already had popular games in its catalog, but then between Fallout and Baldur's Gate, I remember RPGs like this were suddenly having a moment in the sun, and Interplay itself kind of became a powerhouse within that genre. 
like all my friends and I were all very interested in any RPGs that were coming up for that publisher. We not only got sequels to Fallout and Baldur's Gate, we also got Icewind Dale and Planescape Torment, which are also widely acclaimed. But that said, Interplay wasn't really doing well financially, despite the success of its RPGs. Exactly what went wrong from the company is kind of complicated. It generally sounds like it was just kind of mismanaged. But I found a solid summary on bittech.net that distills everything pretty succinctly. Sadly, despite the popularity of its games, Interplay Productions ran into financial trouble around 1998. The company found itself in bankruptcy court, and to avoid closure, the company listed on the NASDAQ exchange and changed its name to Interplay Entertainment. Unfortunately, this was little more than a temporary solution, a failure to capitalize on the exploding console market, an ill-fated venture into sports gaming, and increased competition in the PC game arena led to continued losses and investment from Paris-based Titus Software came with strings that saw Interplay lose its publisher's status. So yeah, the mid-aughts were actually pretty dire for Interplay. I remember stories coming out about the company locking employees out of the office, the state of California going after them over unpaid royalties to developers, and them selling off the Fallout IP to Bethesda in order to pay creditors. And in the middle of all this, Interplay transferred the D&D license to Atari of all groups as part of a settlement in a lawsuit between Interplay and Snowblind Studios, the developer who did the original Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance game. And that license ended pretty messily with a multi-year lawsuit between Hasbro and Atari over allegations that Atari had breached the contract. It was like dramatic at the time. Damn. I found an Ars Technica article from like December 2009 summarizing the lawsuit. Back in May, Namco Bandai bought a 34% stake in Atari Europe, and Namco Bandai also purchased Infogram's interest in distribution partners this past July. If Hasbro's claims are to be believed, Atari apparently violated its licensing agreement with Hasbro when it sold Atari Europe, and it also misled Hasbro about the deal. Quote, despite Hasbro's repeated questions about how its property was being managed in these countries, if Namco Bandai was not managing it, Atari has continuously refused to answer in any meaningful way. Hasbro can no longer trust its brand in the hands of Atari and brings this action to confirm its right to terminate Atari's license to Dungeons and Dragons. End quote. Dramatic. Like I said. (laughs) Yeah, like I said, dramatic. Uh, I... I forgot to note that article is titled Has Atari Gone Chaotic Evil Over D&D Publishing Rights? Okay, that's funny. Right? It's very funny. Snaps. Snaps. (laughs) And it was written by one Mike Thompson. Oh, well, fucker, of course it's funny. (laughs) Of course the title's funny. You had me me fucking quoting you. Yeah, I did. I love that for you. I, I thought it was pretty good. I was like, holy shit. When I So this was literally... The top Google result when I was looking up Atari's D&D rights. <laughs> I love that. Okay, you know what? What's funny about that is you actually, you did tell me that you had found your own article. And I, I didn't st- tell you any specifics though. Me. No, no, because you, st- you still caught me off guard here. <laughs> I like, it's funny because the background being that I was a video game and tech journalist for years and I was working for Ars Technica and I don't even remember writing this article. Like I wrote so many, (laughs) like, I don't know, man. I was just, just pumping them out. Yeah. Cause they would only pay us 10 bucks an article. (laughs) Like that's so gross. Yeah. That was the thing. (laughs) So hmm. thanks. Condi nast fuckers. Anyway, (laughs) uh, that lawsuit ultimately ended with a settlement that saw digital licensing rights for D and D returning to Hasbro. And since then, Hasbro has primarily worked with Canadian developer Beamdog, which was founded by some Bioware veterans on remastered versions of the original Baldur's Gate games, bringing it to other platforms, as I mentioned earlier. But now we can talk about the other, in quotes, Baldur's Gate comics, because since then, Baldur's Gate's comics kind of languished. We didn't officially get a new one until October 2014, when IDW published the Legends of Baldur's Gate miniseries. It was written by Jim Zub with art by Max Dunbar, lettered by Neil Utaki, 
and colored by Jean-Paul Beauvais. This was part of the larger Tyranny of Dragons storyline that was going on in Dungeons and Dragons at the time. And without going into too many spoilers, Legends of Baldur's Gate introduces us to a moon elf wild mage named Delina, who travels to the city of Baldur's Gate to find her brother. Very early in the story, we learn that the character Minsk, who is a human ranger who has showed up as an NPC you can recruit to your party in all three of the main Baldur's Gate games, has a statue in the city, and he's kind of treated like a patron saint. But it turns out that it's actually him. He was turned to stone at some point, and then Delina accidentally frees him with her wild magic. The two heroes wind up on the wrong side of the law, and then the cult of the dragon. And then along the way, Delina and Minsk become friends with thieves, Crydel and Shandy. The group works to figure out what the cult is up to until it turns out that Delina's brother is actually working with the cult and wants to use her in a dark ritual to take her magic and transform himself into a dragon. The group eventually defeats Delina's brother, and then they agree to stick together as a party. I would like to note, Minsk wound up being one of the most popular characters in the video games, probably because he is a very useful character, but also because he is accompanied by Boo, a, quote, miniature giant space hamster that he befriended after taking too many blows to the head. Yes. Oh, my God. I love Boo so much. Boo is my favorite. He's great. He always goes for the eyes of evil. It's it's fantastic. Yes. <laughs> like, and in the lore, Minsk is like kind of this, like, you know, they originally portrayed him as like simple minded because of like possibly brain damage. Right. They have updated him a bit. So he's a little bit more of kind of like a very simple is not the right word, but he's kind of a giant himbo, like just not having a lot of common sense. He's a literal thinker, too. <laughs> yeah. Like, he doesn't think in nuance at all. He's a very, like, black and white thinker. Yeah. But yeah, and then, like, you know, he tries to do the right thing. But the thing is, is because he takes such a direct approach, it often causes a lot of trouble in new and different ways for both him and his friends. But yeah. How did you feel about The Legends of Baldur's Gate? I thought it was really fun. I liked how they gave each of the characters a good bit of development and they really had their own personalities. Like each mm-hmm. of them really had very vivid personalities. Yeah. And yeah, I loved Minx too because Boo, he's beloved. He needs to be <laughs> preserved at all costs. Okay. Yes. My absolute favorite story was when Boo just goes rogue one night and takes out a whole gang of rascals trying to find the group. And the group wakes up to all of the baddies tied up outside their hideout. They're just like, oh, I guess we'll let the town guard deal with it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, Zub is actually a very good writer. He was doing a lot of stuff with Marvel for Conan the Barbarian. He's now doing the new Conan the Barbarian series for Titan books. Oh, that's awesome. And you love Conan. Incredibly talented writer. Like, I really like him. And he was really involved with all of the Dungeons and Dragons comic stories going forward at this point. Yeah. So since then, the group's adventures have continued across several miniseries that came out roughly once a year. They were always tied to different Dungeons and Dragons storylines that were going on at the same time. It was like, basically, this was like helping spread awareness of different campaign modules that were coming up. Oh, okay. So, yeah. In 2016, we got Shadows of the Vampire, which was a tie into the Curse of Strahd. So that story has the company getting stuck in the Demiplanes of Dread and facing off against the evils there, including the vampire Strahd von Zarevich. After that was Frost Giant's Fury, which was linked to the Storm King's Thunder Adventure module. 2018 saw the story continue in Evil at Baldur's Gate, which I think was loosely linked to Tomb of Annihilation. And then we got Infernal Tides from 2019 to 2020. And that's been billed as a prelude to Baldur's Gate 3 itself and is presumably related to the module Descent into Inverness, which itself has been publicly tied to the new video game and takes place roughly 100 years after the events of the original games. Infernal Tide sees our now familiar party of adventurers getting pulled into the Blood War, an eternal conflict between devils and demons in D&D mythology. It's effectively a stand-in for the battle between order and chaos. And that series ends with almost everything getting wrapped up neatly, though one of the characters has apparently sold his soul for the greater good, and there is an ominous to-be-continued note with a question mark, and I think that's it. I didn't find anything else. 
So while we've had all these series come out that establish the events of the Baldur's Gate games as canon, they're not really stories from the video games themselves. As comics, I personally think that they are stronger for it because they're all self-contained stories that you don't really need to be familiar with the video games to understand. You can just be a D&D or a broader fantasy nerd and enjoy them. Like, I think they're really fun. But basically the comics are now just one part of the overall, you know, transmedia property that is D&D and they're being used to help market various events and products. And I think it's actually really smart because they're using very talented people to do this. Yeah, I think it's a good move. You know, if you already have both of the types of property, you might as well utilize them. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is that D&D is seeing an unprecedented amount of success right now, like especially thanks to things like Stranger Things, bringing it more into cultural awareness, but also the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons is like wildly more accessible than previous versions have been. So it's suddenly much more appealing to people. We also experienced a panini recently, so. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) we have talked on this show very publicly about how we are very actively involved in Dungeons and Dragons campaigns about a year and a half ago. We had Kelly from Goblin Bros in Petaluma come on to help us talk about Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s as part of the first of three episodes where we talked about Dungeons and Dragons and comics. And if you want to go back and listen to them, they are really fun episodes. We had a lot of fun learning about all of the stuff. So we did. Yeah. yeah. It was a good time. Yeah, it was really cool. And now we are recording this about three weeks out from Baldur's Gate 3's release on PC and roughly a week before the game drops on PlayStation 5. BioWare wasn't involved in this game's development. Instead, it was made by the Belgian developer Larian Studios, who previously were best known for the Divinity series of video games, which are relatively similar in terms of gameplay style and all that. But, you know, it's their own IP. So Baldur's Gate 3 was revealed just ahead of E3 in 2019 at... (laughs) The Google Stadia event, which, spoiler, Stadia shut down earlier this year. Womp womp. And uh, yeah, (laughs) so turns out Baldur's Gate 3, not coming to Stadia anymore. (sighs) I I have so many stories about Stadia. Mm -mm. Uh, Man, (laughs) I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say with my NDA from from working at 2K. So that's what Uh, I was wondering. Anyway, Baldur's Gate 3, the early access version had a limited amount of content available. The articles that I read said it had about 25 hours of gameplay. I was trying to stay as fresh as possible for the game's launch when I heard it was also coming to consoles. So like I have basically been going around with blinders on because I'm like, I can't get early access to this. I don't want to spoil it. I knew people were stoked about it, though. Like I was stoked about it. But in the months ahead of the game's launch, it felt like things were really reaching a fever pitch. Like we knew it was going to be big. I don't think most people realized it was going to be this big because within two weeks, it sold more than 5 million copies on steam. I don't know what the sales numbers are at now. And since it's launched, it's like all over TikTok and YouTube. And I mean, it makes sense that like that is populating my algorithm because I consume a lot of D and D stuff. But I pre-ordered the game on PS5 and Sarah and I are planning to start playing the game on September 2nd because you get early access to the game for pre-ordering it. Speaking of pre-orders, I am actually going to be playing the game with her and we're going to collaborate on all the narrative decisions. We have certain things that we've established that are like non-negotiable, like we have to mutually decide on who we're going to romance. We can't be an evil character. Like, and then... And we have no problem looking up guides to get around puzzles or figure things out if we get stuck because we're old and we have a family and only so much free time to play a game. Exactly. Well, and that makes a lot of sense why I told you that I was going to be out of town on Labor Day and you were like, I'm not available Labor Day anyway. (laughs) We're doing a pool party and then we're playing (laughs) D&D. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He will be face first in an RPG. (laughs) It's going to be great. We're going to have it on our 65 inch TV. It's, you know, (laughs) this is what adult Um, money buys. Adult money buys you having a pool day and then playing like a massively large game of like projected D&D. (laughs) And I get to go to Disneyland whenever I damn well please, because that's where I will be again. That wasn't my idea, though. We already talked about that. 
I love the fact that we're the adults that we wanted to be when we were kids, for the most part. Dude, I actually told my tattoo artist because, you know, again, adult money, no children for me. So, right. you know, I was getting a tattoo the other day, <laughs> clocked in working, getting a tattoo, <laughs> I might add. Good. And I was talking to my tattoo artist and I said, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, but I looked in the mirror and I was like, dude, I'm the person that like me as a kid would have thought was so fucking cool. Yeah. And that's what I love. And I'm so happy that I've achieved that. Like, don't get me wrong. The last couple of years, I've gone from 60 to zero real quick. Like, but I had <laughs> a long period of time where like, I mean, I'm still happy with who I am. Yeah. But I have multiple college degrees. I worked in video games for almost a decade. And before that, I spent almost a decade working as a journalist. I got to do all sorts of cool stuff like work at Disneyland yeah. and work as a ski patroller. Like I, you know, I had an article about video game cited in the Supreme court case. Like the reason that we met is because I wrote a comic that Maya Kobabe illustrated and was published in the nib. Like I, I used yeah. to have a tattoo or I used to have a Mohawk and tattoos. I now have a beard and tattoos. It's fine. I have multiple dogs. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say those tattoos fall off after a while. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> Unless you get them refreshed. It's like stickers. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's one of those things where I sit there and I look at my house and I look at my life. And, like, I remember looking at my parents when I was my stepkid's age and thinking about how miserable adulthood seemed. And Right. And that's the thing is I'm like, I don't think that they get the impression that Sarah and I are miserable. That's good. Like, we... We have a lot of fun. We we laugh a lot. We do stuff. We play video games with them. We go out and take them to the comic store. Yeah. Yeah. I like <laughs> I know I know their kids think that I'm cool because they see some of the souvenirs that I have from working in video games. One of them saw a claptrap statue that I had and they're like, huh. Oh, so does Mike like Borderlands? And Milo was like, No, his he worked on it. His name's in the credits for Borderlands three. <laughs> and then eyes wide of saucers on that yeah. kid, right? <laughs> yeah, as as I'm sitting there baking cookies in the kitchen. You know. <laughs> of course. Oh my gosh. But See, yeah. that just we're we're very well rounded now, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well rounded and happy and not I don't know. Like, not miserable slaving away at jobs that we hate because they pay well. Yeah, no. I Yeah, no. actually, I told somebody the other day that I had quit my public service job. And they were very surprised. They said, but you were making pretty good money. And I said, I was miserable. She said, but, yeah. but you were making a lot of money. And she's a few years older than me. And I think she just has that, like, capitalist, like, productivity mindset that I just... I my mental health couldn't sit me through continuing to work in that environment. Yeah. My last job was so miserable. I was looking to get out of it so fast. And I was just yeah. like, I'm this is how I work. I'm very spiteful. And I was like, no, 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 you can you can pay me while I continue to job hunt. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, fuck it. I'm going to be an entertainer. <laughs> Good. So yeah, that's where we're going to leave things. Baldur's Gate 3 is continuing the series trend of critical acclaim and massive sales. But the only comic that is actually directly tied to it came out a few years ago. That's cool. So yeah. Do you have any final thought about Baldur's Gate before we move on? I think the later stuff especially was a really fun read. I loved yeah. the art. There is this one scene where they do a full page shot of like, this explosion and they have a barrel coming at you and the way that it was like a, a page turner to where you turn to this page as it was happening and it looks the way that they drew the barrel and it was kind of fuzzy like it was in motion coming towards yeah. you and they did such a nice job of it yeah i was so impressed by that i even went back just to get the effect again because it really does feel like it's gonna pop out towards you when you turn that page yeah no i really liked the newer stuff even though it's not technically Baldur's Gate comics really like you know it's like kind of loosely Baldur's Gate it's adjacent it's spiritually Baldur's Gate spiritually proximity wise yeah. <laughs> it touches yeah. but yeah it was fun to find out that there was another Baldur's Gate comic that people probably don't know a lot about before now yeah go check it out yeah 
So uh, what do you say we roll some dice and move on over to Brain Wrinkles? God, I'm hoping for a 20 on this one. All right, we are now at Brain Wrinkles, which is the one thing that is comics or comics adjacent that has been stuck in our noggin since the last time we recorded. So I have been talking a lot. What have you been thinking about lately? If my face is any indication, this is not going to be like... I'm getting real nervous, man. I'm looking at that grimace. Uh, Yes, grimace is correct. And not Grimace's birthday kind of a Grimace. I was literally about to say that and not Grimace from McDonald's. (laughs) I may or may not have just painted a shed purple and I just realized it's like Grimace shake purple. That was not intentional. I have this color picked out prior to Grimace's birthday. Did you have one of those Grimace milkshakes? No, I didn't. Did you try? I would be Sarah and I got one. Yeah, Sarah and I got one. And uh, I like it tasted like. Like kind of like it was like a grape cough syrup milkshake. I was like, it's not. But did you have it with did you have it with French fries? No, but that's the whole thing is I learned about that. Oh, no, it's meant to have the French fries dipped in it. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I should have bought that. Because then the salt and the yeah, that's what I heard. So my whole thing with the Grimace thing, this is going to be a little off topic here, but yeah. The Grimace thing was cracking me up. I love the internet because there was this whole thing about Grimace's birthday and how, you know, Grimace had this shake, right? But then people were buying the shake and they were doing this trend on TikTok where they were like doing this like horror (laughs) cutscene where they would drink the shake and then it would like cutscene to them like lying in a pool of like shake, presumably dead, right? They were very creative. Or or they they would like. Or they would turn into Grimace and they would, or like right. it was like a zombie thing and they would go after. Right. It was so funny. Sarah and I got so much yes. entertainment out of it. I did too. I did too. But then it went totally full circle because other people came online and they were like, Grimace came out here just to like have everybody celebrate his birthday. And all they did was make fun of him. And then all these memes of Grimace crying were coming out and how yeah. sad he was. Like, are, do people not like my milkshake? Is my oh, milkshake yeah. hurting people? And then you felt people? bad. <laughs> and then you <laughs> feel like, bad oh. about it. And then it's like, oh my God, I have so many feelings about this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But that wasn't my real brain wrinkle. We would not have any of that last conversation or any of the conversation that we've had previously in this episode if we didn't have artists. Mm-hmm. And I am goddamn tired of artists time and efforts and creativity and imagination not be fucking recognized or valued and i have been thinking a lot about how we experience and appreciate art in our society like generally because especially living in the u.s where this place revolves around productivity and currency and so many times The arts are seen as like unnecessary or frivolous, but Mm -hmm. ultimately art is everywhere and in everything we do. And it is so frustrating to see that we don't value artists time in the same way that we appreciate other types of productivity. And yet we rely so heavily on art to do anything. So with the Hollywood writers and SAG after strikes still ongoing at this point, which we're recording this towards the end of August, by the way. Yeah. It's uh, it's bad, man. And, you know, we have corporations out there saying basically like outwardly saying like, well, we're just wait for them to like lose their ability to like do this. Like, we're just going to like wait it out until they can't pay their rent until they can't buy food. Like they're, they're talking about starving them out basically. Yeah, they don't care the fact that, like, you know, we all recognize that they're the villains in this and that they are twirling their mustaches. Like, right. the general public is vastly behind the writers in sag after. Yeah, like absolutely. Like, we are all just like, like, no, no, no. The the villains in this story is the Producers Guild. Like, yeah, yeah. And the studios. 100%. They're just on their yachts like, oh, I'm sorry. I think an orca just tried to bite my rudder. I gotta go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Orcas to the rescue. But it's so frustrating to be constantly gaslit by society into thinking that art isn't a valuable activity to pursue. Yeah. And I'm such a fucking bummer and I apologize. (laughs) It's okay. There is a really great video interview with the sci-fi writer Harlan Ellison. He had worked on a bunch of TV projects, but it's called Pay the Writer. 
really recommend you go watch that. It's fantastic. Okay. Um, yeah. Cause he talks about how I think it was Warner brothers was trying to get him to do an interview for the Babylon five, like Blu-ray or DVD and they wouldn't pay him. And he was like, fuck you pay me. No, exactly. <laughs> like what the hell? Like, yeah, it you just great. want me there for nothing. No, no, it's really good. Anyone that does anything creative, it's the thing that I show to because I'm like, you need to watch this. It is such yeah. a excellent breakdown of like a, you know, why our time is valuable, but B also it's a searing indictment of how society views artists. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I will check it yeah. out. Well, what about you? Something better, maybe? Hey. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, okay. Not really. Sorry, everyone. Okay. Womp womp. So, okay. This is also video game related. For years, there has been a kind of like a corporate holding group called Embracer Group. And they were going around for years spending just the most ludicrous amounts of cash on various studios. So like back in 2021, they, I think, acquired Gearbox, the studio responsible for Borderlands, for like over a billion dollars, like just a crazy amount of money. And back in March of 2022, they acquired Dark Horse Entertainment. So they were going to use them as like an IP factory. It's, you know, it's kind of like the same way that Disney is using Marvel to test out ideas and stuff. Right. But the other thing is that Dark Horse has a really large library of content that they have spun out into movies and some video games and things like that. Like, I think we're getting a new Hellboy game soon coming out. They were also teasing that, like, you know, some of the stuff that I've talked about on previous episodes, like X, the kind of like weird, grim, noir in quotes, hero that they did in the nineties was potentially going to get kind of like a game based on the graphics they were using to announce stuff. Okay. But yeah, in May Embracer had a $2 billion deal go up and smoke at the last minute. And if you're not familiar with this, it is, I feel a little bad, but like one of my favorite things every now and then is I'll go back and I'll watch the video where this came out because I think it was like a stockholder kind of interview thing that they were doing and it had just gone up and smoked the night before and the look on i think he's the ceo's face is just it's kind of it's one of those things where like i really enjoy watching c-level execs have bad days a lot of the time because i'm just like i you don't care about the people that work for you yes (laughs) yes yeah but the downside to this is that they are starting to close studios and i am very nervous about how it's going to affect Dark Horse. Uh, hey, it's Future Mike again. So a couple of things happened since we recorded. About a week after recording this episode, Embracer shut down the storied game developer Volition, which had previously published the Free Space games with Interplay back in the 90s. And then, two days before this episode was dropping, Reuters broke the news that Embracer is looking to sell Gearbox. So couple of weird coincidences and updates with this episode. Anyway, thanks for listening. I I hope it'll be okay. I hope that Dark Horse is going to be recognized as something that is not terribly expensive compared to a lot of these other groups. Yeah. But, you know, you don't know. But it has been back in the news over the past week because it was revealed that the deal was with a game investment group, I think, that was owned by Saudi Arabia. Oh, and and it's like, well, I'm like, I don't know, guys, like I don't have anything specific, but Embracer Group always weirded me out a little bit. Okay. with some of the acquisitions that they made, it just it felt very shadowy and nebulous. Mm. And then it's like, oh, so you were just going to get two billion dollars from the Saudi royal family, like indirectly. But like, I'm like, oh, okay, so like Hmm. maybe you are the bad guys. I don't know. Like, again, especially since I haven't worked in video games in years, but I'm just kind of like sitting there watching all this from afar and looking at the potential ripple effects. And I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. But Hard not to speculate, huh? Yeah. And not in the fun way, like we would do with Jake and Jesus. Yeah. No, they're fun. They're the fun kind of speculation. Yeah. By the way, at the time of recording, they have just started recording again because Jake has moved into his house. I'm very excited for them. Yay! They had a friend of the podcast who has not been on, but is going to be on at some point, WWE ref Jason Ayers on to record with them. I'm I'm really excited excited for that that. episode to drop. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
yeah, like I'm really looking forward to that. But yeah, so on that happy note, we are going to leave all of you until next week. We will be back then with another Dollarman Discovery. After that, we will be back with a deep dive. I think we're going to be talking about the 80s comic six from Sirius. I think so. I think I so. I keep forgetting we already recorded that. I'm <laughs> check. <laughs> I, we Good. did the thing. <laughs> yeah. And then who knows what's coming after that. But yeah, until then, stay safe out there and we will see you all in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, or now. The official podcast account is Tencent Takes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Blue Sky, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. <laughs>